Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts Don Abernathy and Jeff Copsetta. Our artillery was called in, but our mortars could fire only to the front of the company and not on the left flank area because that was in the area of the 1st Marines. The Japanese observers on the ridge had a clear, unobstructed view of us. Their artillery shells whined and shrieked, accompanied by the deadly whispering of the mortar shells. Enemy fire grew more intense until we were pinned down. We were getting the first bitter taste of Bloody Nose Ridge, and we had increasing compassion for the first Marines on our left who were battering squarely into it. When the enemy ceased firing artillery and mortars from caves, they shut protective steel doors and waited while our artillery, naval guns, and 81mm mortars blasted away at the rock. If we moved ahead under our protective fire support, the Japanese pinned us down and inflicted serious losses on us because it was almost impossible to dig a protective foxhole in the rock. No individual events of the attack stuck in my mind, just the severe fire from our left and the feeling that any time the Japanese decided to do so, they could have blown us sky high. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And tonight, we are joined once again by the one, the only Henry Sledge. And there's good reason for that. Uh, Jeff Copset is not able to join us tonight, but also joining us is an active Marine and living historian that I've known, um, we'll get to momentarily for a while, Mr. Charlie Smith. But first and foremost, Henry, we have some big news for the audience tonight, sir. You want to tell them you want me to? Uh, you go ahead. We've had such a good time with Henry, and Henry, Jeff, and I, we all get to, uh, along so well. Our chemistry is such that uh, we annoy each other at midnight with random text messages about the weirdest things, that always World War II base, that we decided, hey, you know, when Henry came on the first time, he made the announcement that, hey, I'm wanting to get into the podcast world, and, you know, I have a, a desire to do uh, voiceover work like you just heard. Uh, we started the show. That was uh, Henry reading an excerpt from his father's book with the old breed from, uh, by obviously E.B. Sledge. And um, after he came on the podcast two or three times, me, him, and Jeff said, "Well, instead of starting a new podcast from the ground up, why not just join ours permanently?" So here he is. He's a fixture, and it worked out great because now, like on nights when Jeff's not available, it's me and Henry. Um, and night Henry's not available, it'll be me and Jeff, or it'll be all three of us, or maybe who knows? One day it'll be Jeff and Henry flying this ship, and I can. Uh, you know, have a sick day or whatever. But anyhow, we'll get more of that later. I want to talk to Mr. Charlie Smith. Charlie, how are you doing, sir? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Hey, uh, thanks for coming on. Real quick, um, I've known you. I, I Well, we'll get to that momentarily. But for the audience at home, uh, give us a little background. Uh, where are you from? What do you do? How did you get involved in uh, interest in uh, World War II history? Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm Charlie Smith, uh, originally from North Carolina, currently stationed up here at Marine Corps Base Quantico. Uh, I'm a, a newly commissioned second lieutenant, uh, previously uh, enlisted sergeant, uh, came over to the dark side, so to speak. And I'm up here doing my uh, my basic officer course here at the basic school. Uh, I got started into uh, my love of World War II history really uh, as a kid, when I first saw Band of Brothers, which I think was a, a big uh, a big entryway, a gateway drug, if you will, for a lot of us to get involved and uh, to really see things. And and from there, growing up with the uh, with several Marine veterans in the family, that kind of was the segue into the uh, 
specific side of things. And, uh, yeah, here I am now. So. Yeah, the Band of Brothers for your generation did to uh, military service what Top Gun did to the Navy in the 1980s. Everybody yeah, who saw, saw went, went out and saw Top Gun, they quickly went and joined the Navy thinking they were going to be pilots and having a great time. Uh, they got in the Navy, but the pilot side didn't work quite out as well for them. Sure. But um, now, correct me if I'm wrong, you did the Alabama events with Galen Wagner and crew, right? Yeah, so I've done a handful of those. I've also been down to the events um, down there at Fort Morgan. Uh, first did Tarawa, then Peleliu. I was uh, there. Wasn't able to, wasn't able to attend uh, the most recent timeline one. But yeah, I've done uh, uh, quite a handful of uh, Pacific-themed events, um, you know, after years of doing uh, primarily just like U.S. Army stuff. So Yeah, I was actually there. That's why I said earlier, you and I have known each other, kind of. Um, you know, I was at both those events, and I was thinking earlier – one of the my personal favorite, obviously, the landing craft was cool. Having run of Fort Morgan is awesome. But one of my personal things that I love about those events that Galen Wagner puts on that separates them from every other event is when we celebrate the Marine Corps birthday and we do what what the mess in. <laughs> The mess in is my favorite thing when we have people airing their grievances and just the whole thing. That is one of my favorite parts of that weekend. Well, I think what, what really helps is, you know, we've got a handful of like, uh, you know, uh, either currently serving or previously serving Marines. Mm-hmm. So we understand the, the intricacies, the in and outs of the Marine Corps. And, and one of those things is that uh, that that Marine Corps birthday slash mess night that you're kind of touching on. And uh, that was one of those things that was kind of sprung last second. And uh, we said, you know, we're just going to roll with it. And uh, it actually turned out to be like a really awesome uh, little thing for the event and stuff. It was a really good time for some camaraderie and uh, just a, a lot of good memories associated with that. I, I really enjoyed it myself. So One of the things that tends to happen to people who stick around the living history world and show initiative and uh, responsibility is oftentimes they get um, sucked into the logistics and organization side of an event, which you currently have found yourself in. And you guys have a pretty cool timeline coming up in an event up in Ohio in 2022. You guys are doing an early Guadalcanal event, right? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, myself, uh, Corey Schultz, another uh, another Marine officer and uh, reenactor, uh, Cole Kachadurian. There's a good handful of us that um, we all have this affinity for the Marines of World War II, as, as many of us do. And uh, for years, we've, we've understood and identified that there's been a basically a, a gap is of, uh, of events just in general for PTO themed things. Sure. Uh, by and large, the war two community is, is really saturated with, uh, uh, ETO stuff, which is understandable. But for us that, especially us like Marines, you know, we want to portray Marine history. And so, um, it all kind of started as, you know, it'd be awesome if, you know, if there was an event for this kind of thing. And, uh, I don't remember who it was, but someone poised, why don't we do it? And uh, we all just kind of looked at ourselves and was like, yeah, well, why don't we? And uh, that sort of like started us down the rabbit hole. And uh, having this uh, this connection that I have with the landowner up here in Ohio, uh, I've done an event out there before. And uh, we we're like, you know, this is something that I think that we could really pull off. And right now we're really in the weeds with, with the planning and the, uh, the logistics of it. And it's uh, shaping up really nicely. We really think that this is going to be a uh, a brand new, uh, really cutting edge sort of event for the PTO community uh, for World War II reenacting, and that's what we hope to do, honestly. So, 
Now, is there any concerns? And Henry, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to jump in. Um, yeah, just, sure. just the radio guy and me, I'm always just keeping it moving because even though we're we're yeah. live and it's a podcast, I'm always concerned about dead air. But uh, so yeah, just cut me off if you need to. But Charlie, was there any concerns about? Because um, obviously, in the Marine Corps guys like us, there are so few of us in the the reenactment community. Was there any concern about a, a percentage of us not being able to do the event because the uh, you know? We don't have 1903s, basically. No, you know, that's always, I think that's always been one of the, uh, the main takeaways that we've identified that has prevented something like this from happening. Um, because it's like, you know, the earlier back you, you start trying to do Marine Corps stuff, mm-hmm. the more specialized gear and, and weapons that you have to get into, and, and you bring up the 1903 Springfield. Um, but turns out that for years, everyone seems to have been doing their own Guadalcanal and early war impressions on the side. Okay. So many, so many people already own all the components, and we identified this. And it's like now we just need to bring them together. And uh, basically, it, it seems like this has been wanting to happen for so long. Um, and now that there is an event, there's an outlet for it. Everyone's just flooding into it, and they're like, "Yeah, I've been wanting to do Guadalcanal for years. I've got the impression and stuff." And not to mention that part of the reason why we uh, we started promoting. And, and planning this event and getting the word out sooner rather than later was to give people the proper time that like, Hey, we understand that a 1903 is an investment. I recently bought one myself. Um, but the sooner you start to save and start to start to poise yourself to get one over like, uh, the course of the year before the event, it's easier to obtain. And, um, at the end of the day, we want everyone that can make it out to the event. Um, to do so uh, and we're definitely willing to help in any way that we can as far as like helping to procure the right weapons and things like that so um well the nice thing, actually, the, yeah. the nice thing about that impression is with the exception of the 1903 the only real difference between a guadalcanal impression and any other impression is the canteen cover uh the first aid pouch and uh take off your green sage t-shirt and put on your white one and obviously if you have you know a, a fixed bail helmet and a an imitation of Holly liner slap that on, but there's really, and a T handle show, but there's really not too much difference or not too much equipment, uh, acquisition required. Is there? Uh, so I, I would argue like it, it really comes down to the details. Uh, you know, we're, we're really trying to take this as like a highly authentic sort of experience. And when it comes to the gear and weapons, that's one of them. You mentioned, you know, the fixed bail and the Holly liner. Um, another good thing that we've kind of come across is that, so many people already have Holly liners, which mm-hmm. is awesome. Um, so many people already have the flat buckle uh, P41 suspenders, which is awesome. Um, and, and thankfully, you know, all these things are available. And if they're not available at the moment, we're currently ensuring that these products are going to get reproduced in time for the event. So in regards to the riveted haversacks that were worn by Marines on Guadalcanal, um, we're currently working with, with Jerry Lee at What Price Glory. To, okay. to ensure that a run of those are done. Um, same thing with the early war ponchos, the khaki ones. Uh, currently, there's one source that we have that's in the UK, um, and we have identified that we want something uh, more local, something easier to procure. So Jerry Lee, uh, he's really been like a right-hand guy for us on this. He's He sees an opportunity, obviously, as a businessman sure. to, uh, to come in here. But he's also a historian as well. So that helps out a ton. Jerry always listens to uh, the reenacting community and asks, like, hey, what should I make next? And um, so 
I will say that like the uh, the impression, you know, you really start getting into the weeds, and there are some some small but key differences as far as gear from say your your marine that landed on Peleliu versus who went uh, on Guadalcanal. But thankfully, with as much time as we have, the the um, the the means in which we're going through to get things reproduced, everyone's going to be able to like come to the event with the right gear with the right mindset and be able to really enjoy this experience that, that we're, that we're creating right now. Now, do you have any groups who are currently um, wanting to do any Marine Raiders, the Macon, Tagali, any of that, or is pretty much everybody doing, you know, just straight up first, yeah, Marine, so, uh, first, uh, uh, first Marine division. So we have, uh, whenever we began like planning on the event, um, I took a lot of my experiences from the civil war campaigner community. And something that the campaigner community does really well is they set an event and everyone comes together to portray one like uniformed unit, so to speak. It's, and they form the nucleus of that. Um, and it was actually Corey and Cole who suggested, I've got the book here. So the book's on the canal and it's about L35 and their time on Guadalcanal when they landed from the 5th Marines. Um, and so we are going to be, be portraying a platoon from L Company of 3-5. Uh, we know basically almost day to day what they were doing on the canal. Um, and because of this book and everything and the way we want to keep this, uh, uh, very organic. So we're going to be portraying this one unit. Uh, we didn't want to portray Raiders or anything like that. Um, not that we don't think that's cool. We love that stuff. Um, it came down to, I guess, a practicality. Yeah. It's more, it's more reasonable to portray, um, just a regular standard uh, rifle platoon than say the Raiders or Paramarines or anything like that. But also they were the vast majority of the guys that fought on Guadalcanal. And this is what it's all about telling their story, preserving that history, so to speak. Do you, do you have any groups coming in to represent the army that came in later near the end of the securing of Guadalcanal or is it just primarily uh, Marine so, Corps impression? No. So this is a Marine specific event. This is set in September of 1942. So a month after the initial landing, um, we had some people ask about that. Uh, and just as event coordinators, it's just something that we weren't interested in, in doing, not because of any animosity or anything like that, but we wanted a Marine only Marine specific event, the Guadalcanal. And, and that is the route that we've taken. And, um, you know, it's no hard feelings or anything like that. But just based on the research and everything that we have available, we decided we wanted to do September of 42 on Guadalcanal of L Company of 3-5. Um, and at the time, there were only Marines on the island. Yep. You know, so that's uh, that's just kind of how that shaped up. And, I mean, we've it's been really awesome to see just so many people coming out of the woodwork in the community for War II and just reenacting in general that want to be a part of this because it's it's something so new. Uh, and so unique to what we've been seeing. Um, and it's got us really excited, I should say. Now, you being an active Marine, um, when it comes to setting up an event like this or maybe trying to find out some of these details, I know some people on, on the page were talking about whether the original um, khaki pup tents were one you know had the single flap or the dual flap have you you being an active marine do you have like any access to any of that sort of archival stuff about the equipment that was issued that you're able to use as research purposes or is it just all you know packed away somewhere so um i will say that with me being here in quantico uh the marine corps historical division and archives are here as well 
Um, now I haven't been able to make my way over there as of yet, but they have a, a treasure trove of, of in their archives regarding um, the fifth Marines on Guadalcanal. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to make it over there sometime soon and begin pulling some stuff to help clear up some of these questions. But thankfully, you know, we have a lot of people within the hobby that, uh, for lack of a better term, become these subject matter experts. Uh, sure. Josh, Josh Kerner is one of those. And I know that you're familiar with Josh, but he's, a, uh, I mean, the guy's a wizard whenever it comes to just knowing things and be able to, to just compile this research. And he's a guy that's really been big on the Guadalcanal sort of research for years at this point. And so he's helped us out tremendously. Uh, we've also got others in the group who have been to Guadalcanal like in person several times. Wow. So it's like uh, a, a big part of their lives. And uh, we've welcomed them aboard and they've helped to shape like the research and the guidelines and everything like that. So, man, I'm, I'm, I'm just one of the guys that's helping to facilitate this. Sure. But, you know, um, it's all about just helping to bring in a good team. So. And um, I just recently finished this book, and I actually sent you a photo of it. It's called uh, The Marine Raiders, The True Story of the Legendary World War II Battalions. It's by uh, Carol Engel Averett. I'm going to actually try to track her down. But this is a fantastic book. It goes through um, the birth, the uh, design, the implementation of the first, second, third, and fourth Marine Raiders, and sadly, the uh, breaking up and how uh -huh. they all basically became the fourth Marines. But this is a fantastic book and, it, and kind of in the styles of HBO specific and uh, Banner brothers, she focuses on four veterans who served in these um, Raider battalions, kind of giving their firsthand accounts using letters and stories. Is Some, that a new book, Don? Yes. This was actually, um, cause when I sent you Henry a photo of this, this was actually yeah. issued in August. This was published in August, just came out. Um, okay. Carrie just happened to be looking through her purse. She found a uh, gift certificate for like books and millions, whatever. So I went online and like, well, what do I do? I I just typed in USMC and this book came up and this is a great book. Um, I was surprised. I obviously I know a lot about the PTO. I know some about Guadalcanal, but all honesty, my information came from uh, strongman arm Japanese versus Americans by um, Robert oh, Lecky, the Guadalcanal, um, Oh, what it's upside down right now. The what's the uh, Guadalcanal book that uh, you were taught? Um, Makos did. Uh, well, he did Voices of the Pacific. I, have, I think the definitive work on Guadalcanal is Richard B. Frank. I think I may be the one I have. It's it's an old school book. It's solid green. It's upside down. It's too far away for me to read. But anyhow, so most of my information comes from there. And 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 Robert Lecky's book, a Helm, uh, helmet for my pillow. He actually talks about you know, the Raiders and how red came and was actually bathing in the creeks and all that. But anyhow, this is a fantastic book. But one thing I wasn't aware of, and I should have been, but I wasn't was the, um, and Charlie and I were talking about this before we went on the air was that to this day, there's a little bit of, um, controversy, if you will, surrounding Carlson and the Carlson Raiders. I'm just going to read a quick passage from this book. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but, um, it said Americans are, um, sorry, Americans are here, we're dying, and at some point reinforcements would be arriving. These are things Carlson's thinking himself. Uh, Carlson uh, himself evidently felt that the situation was dire, dire enough to call a gung-ho style meeting, which he was known for. He tried to um, break down the hierarchy, if you will, so that all his guys felt like they're all one cohesive group and not, you know, okay, I'm listening to brass and you have that resentment. Around midnight, he gathered officers and a few of the senior non-coms to talk over their situation. Here's where things get squirrely. To this day, controversies 
uh, remain among some. A hotly contested one. Uh, reports vary as to who attended this meeting, what was said, who said it, and what actions were taken afterwards. Even raiders who attended can be documented disagreeing on what transpired. Because of this midnight meeting, it appears someone raised the possibility of surrendering to the Japanese. Some say Carlson himself raised the issue of surrendering and then left it up to the individuals, which was consistent with his democratic leadership style. Others claim someone brought it up and then was encouraged to mention it to Carlson or told to forget about such absurd ideas by other Marines. Some say there was a handwritten surrender note. Others said there was most definitely not a note. Still, others said there was one, but it wasn't written in Carlson's handwriting and was signed in an illegible signature. Now, this note was carried by two officers and given to a Japanese soldier who presumably began to journey back to his garrison. On the way, he was shot by another raider who spotted him in the forest. Later, it appears the subsequent Japanese soldiers discovered his body and also the surrender note, which found its way to Tokyo Rose. Now, that's a lot of information, but not a whole lot of detail as exactly what happened. But Charlie seemed to be familiar with this. What's your angle on this, Charlie? Do you think, you know, the obvious... I guess first and foremost, did the letter exist? Tokyo Rose read something. Was the whole story? I mean, I don't know. This is my first time hearing of this. What's your angle on this? I don't know. So I think the jury's still out. It sounds like a lot of he said, she said, you know, kind of stuff. The, the story that I was always familiar with that um, after several attempts of the Raiders trying to get off of Macon Island, mm-hmm. trying to scramble to the subs, and that failing subsequently, um, this whole we'll surrender to the Japanese thing. Uh, was brought up, and I had always understood it to be brought up by Carlson himself. Now, um, how true the story is, I have no idea. Um, the rest of the story that I'm familiar with is that there was a note. It was given to a Japanese soldier um, to be given to the commander of the Japanese garrison there at Macon. Um, however, that note never made it to the Japanese lines because one of the raiders shot and killed this Japanese soldier as he was moving through their lines. So I honestly don't know. Um, Evans Carlson continues to be a polarizing figure um, within the Marine Corps and out of the Marine Corps as far as like historical analysis goes. Do you think um, his, do you think his background and his, um, I don't want to say love, but I'm going to say his deep interest in communist China and their way of um, military activities, because as some of y'all may not know, well, I didn't know either. I learned from this book is he was in the army and then he was in the Marines and then he left, right. went over, served with China's army, went on their long thousand mile march or whatever he learned. And this is why he got the gig in the Raiders because he had a, a deep invested experience with how Asian soldiers operated. But then he came back and did like a college tour kind of promoting and, and supporting some of the ideas of China and their government. And so sometimes I wonder if maybe that background kind of gave some people bad taste in their mouth and maybe that's what helped spread some of this controversy. I think there's definitely something to be said about that. Uh, if you want to call it a smear campaign, you can. Um, Carlson's a guy that uh, I'm honestly not sure how I feel about him. I love uh, – I love his boldness, the innovation that he was willing to undertake, um, you know, and, and the stories that you hear coming out of out of his 
his Raiders is, is just awesome. I mean, just as far as uh, during the interview process back in the States, you know, it's famous that like um, one of the famous like interview questions that he would ask every single individual applicant to the Raiders is, could you, you know, slit a Japanese soldier's throat, you know, without hesitation. And if anyone answered no, apparently they didn't join the Raiders. Like that's how it kind of went. Um, but um, I think a lot of people, especially like in hindsight, see that the Macon raid didn't really um, have the results that necessarily that they thought it would be. If anything, it made the uh, the invasion of Tarawa later uh, a little more difficult because it alerted Japanese forces in that island chain uh, to American involvement or potential American invasion. But um, as far as the note goes and the surrender goes, I don't know. I would like to believe that uh, as, as a as a fellow Marine officer that he wouldn't contemplate like surrendering, but I don't know. I think the jury's still out on it. That's my take. And as you were saying, I think multiple boats got back, um, and I think there's roughly like 120 guys who couldn't. Basically, the tide was just way too high, and if anybody's ever been right. surfing or trying to use a boat or kayak on a on a beach that has high waves at night or even surfing, basically they just kept getting tumbled over and over to the point that a lot of these Marines lost their clothes. The the waves were so high and so rough that these guys are coming back with no boondockers on, their pants are gone, to the point right. that where they're wearing Melanese clothes from the natives. And there's a picture of them, when they the ones who did get back, because even the guys who made it back, they didn't make it back the first try. They all tumbled too, and half of them lost their clothes. And there's a sure. famous photo of them sitting in Hawaii when they get out of the submarine, and you can see them. Some of them are wearing shorts. Some of them are wearing all kind of weird clothes. But the other thing, and which was kind of mentioned in the uh, movie Unbroken, um, after Carlson and got all the all the rest of them got off, there was nine Marines left behind, unbeknownst to anybody. Right. And then apparently at some point they got a hold of a. Um, native melanese i may be pronouncing that wrong but they got like one of their kayaks or their boats and they tried to make it back and at some point they were picked up by a japanese ship right and put in a prison camp and in the movie unbroken there's when he um what was that when lewis uh zamperini was captured and put in the first prison camp you hear them talking about the marines and apparently he saw their names inscribed in one of the uh jails on the wall and it wasn't until later they found out that all nine of them had been decapitated by the, the Japanese. Right. Which was uh, in, in and of itself crazy. But I strongly suggest um, anybody who has interest in Marine Corps history or the PTO, Guadalcanal, or more importantly, the Raiders, pick up this book. Like I said, it just came out in August. Um, I couldn't put it down. It's one of these books. And Charlie and Henry, you guys may be the, like this. Have you ever read a book? And then they'll mention like someone who was there who also read a book. And then so you'll stop, get out your phone, go on Amazon, and then order that guy's book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so before. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that happens all the time. I have, such, I have a massive stack of unread books for that very reason. It's just, you know, always getting thrown on the pile, it seems. So. Yeah, I, um, I just did that. Um, and and the book I just ordered it. Uh, it's so funny. I got it. It's actually at my UPS store, but they're closed today. Um, and it's so funny. I ordered it so quickly. I can't remember. It was Alexander. Oh, uh, what's his name? He went on to be, um, oh, Alexander. Let's see here. I'm going to it now. It's called um, The Battle of Guadalcanal by, I'm sorry, Samuel B. Griffith II. He was there, um, and he he went on to get uh, field promotions and. um and so I'm looking forward to that book. It's so funny because Henry and I were texting, and 
And I was the other thing they mentioned in this was the movie Gung Ho, which is based on Carlson, but it's Hollywood whitewashed. And I was telling Henry, I said, it's weird that they made this movie in 1943. We're still at war. We still have guys going over and they're making this movie about Carlson Raiders. Obviously they didn't mention the controversy about the surrender note and the nine guys who got left behind. But if you guys want to see a physical adaptation, as Charlie was saying, because in that movie they, they kind of talk about, can you slit someone's throat? And so all that stuff's covered in the movie. And cons- considering the fact it was done in 1943 while we were still at war, the only thing that threw me was a in the training boot camp scenes, they were using 1903s, but on the making raid, they had M1 Garen. So I don't know. You figure 1943, they'd be able to get that right. But there's always something that sticks in the crawl of us living historians when it comes. Well, you know, they, they, they may have thought at that point in time that it was more crucial to just get something out about the story. It, because think about the Patton movie. You know, they're showing the German tanks that are, you know, Jeff mentioned that last time we talked. I mean, it's, I think as time has gone on, there's more of a desire to have attention to detail. And as, compared to how it was, you and, know. and not to mention, as Charlie said, what got him interested in, in joining the service was the Band of Brothers. So it's 1943. The war has been going on since 1939. We've been involved since 1942. What a better way to get a recruitment video out there than to show the um, more um, hyped up version of that? Because they only show like two guys getting hit in the whole thing. And so, what a better way to get young guys to go down the recruitment office in 1943 than to put this movie out. Charlie, um, we're getting, we're about ready to wrap it up. Do you have any um, social media groups or anything you want people to go to to check out whether you, your events, uh, the event you're putting together? And as always, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, so we for the event itself, we have uh, a Facebook group. It's Operation Watchtower, September 1942. Uh, the date for the event is going to be the 15th through the 17th of July, 2022. Um, that's a Facebook group. Anyone can join. And that's probably the best way to stay up to date with, uh, not only like event planning and, and development, but, uh, we've got a lot of like good group buys going on and stuff too. Um, getting some discounts on some of these items, um, to make it a little bit easier for folks. Um, that's really like our, our main social media plug that we've got right now. And, um, but yeah, like I said before, and I just want to reiterate, anyone that is interested in coming out that has the ability to do so, um, regardless, like if they have the full impression now, uh, or they're just planning to, or there's just a remote interest, like hit us up. We'd love to like speak to anybody. And, and like I said, there's a place for anyone at this event. Um, and we really think this is going to be something special for the PTO community. And in the end, it's all about preserving that history. And before we let you go, do you have any questions for Henry? It's not very often that people are in this position. I'm sure you get asked all the time, Henry, but I mean, what, I mean, I guess when did it dawn on you that, you know, Eugene Sledge was Eugene Sledge like this, you know, cause now like, especially as an active duty Marine, like we look at Eugene Sledge as this, uh, this quasi godlike figure wrote this awesome book, you know, probably the most definitive book on combat in, in World War II, but to you as your father, um, what, I guess when did it kind of just like strike you like, huh, there's a, this is, this is pretty cool, I guess. Well, no, that, that's a, a great question, Jack. I threw that, please. Jack. Charlie, your, oh, um, your camera's freezing up. Yeah, it is. That's all right. <laughs> 
As you can see over his shoulder, Charlie, that is the Japanese flag that his father got back. We can hear you. Just keep talking. Don't worry about the video because we're going to come back in five minutes anyhow. Henry? Gotta love technology. One of the nice things about living through a pandemic and the fact that, like, for the last year, up for like 12 months, every news broadcast, every TV show, they were all coming in from Zoom. And so now it's like we're all used to something like this freezing up. Charlie, what we will do is I'll have Henry, um, once we reboot, I'll have him answer your question and you can just listen to it on the podcast. And yes. I'll, actually, great. hold on. He's, he's trying to come back in right now. Hold on. Okay, great. Oh, oh, do, 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 do. Okay. Oh, so now we're gonna have two of them. That's fine. Hey. Yeah. You we, guys up there. Yeah, we can hear you. We got uh, five minutes. Go ahead and uh, answer uh, Charlie's question. Yeah, Charlie. I mean, I first of all, thank you for those kind words. I mean, I never take that for granted. But um, you know, yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I was always really interested in my dad's history and used to talk to him a lot. And um, you know, I, I remember when the book got published, and, and I think my mom caught on a lot quicker than I did, obviously. But um, it was it was never something I took for granted. You know, as a teenager, of course, you got other things on your mind. But I, I came around pretty quick. I mean, it, I, even as a teenager, I dreamed of going to Peleliu one day. Right. Um, so, and but that didn't happen until 1999. So. <laughs> And I'm gonna we're gonna cover that on part two of this episode because we've had you on three times now and we've yet talked about your trip to Peleliu and this would be a great night to do it. But uh, Charlie, thank you so much. And as always, anytime we have a guest on who's promoting an event, just head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, find the link for this particular episode, and all of the pertinent information will be there so that people can track you down. Um, real quick, are you guys going to do an event right registration just so you can get an idea how many people are coming? Yeah, so we're currently in the process of uh, setting all that up and uh, starting to, to build our roster and everything like that. So, yep, sure are. Charlie, thank you so much. And it, if you want to come back on when we get maybe January 2022, February, when it gets close to that time, just so we can remind people and I'm sure more event details will come along and things like that and we can give people a refresher course, just hit me up. You're more than welcome to come on anytime, sir. I appreciate that. Thanks so much for y'all's time. It's been a real pleasure. And, nice uh, to meet you, Charlie. Thank you for your service, and November 11th will be appreciate here before you know it, sir. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, for those of you watching on YouTube and Twitch and all that stuff, hold tight. We will be right back. I'm just going to throw up the splash screen. You'll see the logo for a few minutes, and then uh, Henry and I will be right back. So hold tight. <clears throat> What's up, everybody? And we are back with part two of tonight's episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Thank you once again to Charlie Dillon for coming on and sharing us with us some of his experiences and promoting the Guadalcanal event and discussing with me, the um, Marine Raiders. How are you doing tonight, Henry? I'm doing well. You know, you made a good point uh, talking to Charlie. You read a book. I know with me, I'll read a book and get really into the subject. And then I'll like start coming through the bibliography. Yeah. You know, and then I don't know if you could see it earlier, but the, I just finished my book on Battle of Britain. Does this show up okay? I'm yep. going to read this first edition of Strong Men Armed. That's the first edition. That's and that's that's a uh, very cool cover. I'm a little surprised. That's hold hold tight. Talk to the audience. Talk to them about that book because I, I want to show you something very cool. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. So. 
This was on my dad's bookshelf while I was growing up. I think he read it and used it in the bibliography uh, for With the Old Breed. But this is, uh, I don't know how well that shows up, but this is what he wrote in the, in the cover. It just says Eugene B. Sledge served with K Company, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment, 1st Marine Division, Palo Alto, North China. <clears throat> and he wrote this December 19, wrote in this, Montevallo, Alabama, December 1964. So I can remember the, you know, walking to my dad's study as a kid and seeing that binding like that on the, on the bookshelf. And it just always kind of captured my, my fascination. But I, I've read it probably 20 years ago, so I'm looking forward to diving into it again. I picked up this one. This is apparently the 1997 version, which interestingly enough is okay. the year I graduated high school. But I have a, a friend, a customer, and he I recently introduced him to the podcast. I sent him the link to the first time you're on because he's a huge fan of your father. Um, he read the book. Um, he actually had me set up screenshots of the Pacific as his rotating wallpaper on his computer about five years ago. Oh, wow. Anyhow, whenever he reads a book, he ends up giving me his books. Because he's only a one-time re- reader, he only reads through one time, and then he 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 gets you know he moves mm-hmm. on, and so he okay. he's like, hey, I just finished Strongman Armed. Do you want my copy? And I said, sure. And I'm looking at the copyright date on this one, and interestingly enough, this one is 1997. So I actually have two different covers, and so the yeah. one you have is three. I wonder how many different variants of this book there are out there. That is a good question because then, you know, didn't Challenge for the Pacific deal specifically? I thought I had that on my shelf, but I, I don't. But I know Lecky wrote Challenge for the Pacific. Now, was that specifically about Guadalcanal or? or- I haven't read that one. And, and the interesting thing about Robert Lecky and his writing styles, you've read Helmet for My Pillow. Right. And you're going to go back and reread A Strongman Arm. Now, I'm not sure how mm-hmm. long ago you read Helmet for My Pillow. And how much of it you have in your brain. But what's mm-hmm. interesting is when you read through Strongman Arm after reading Helmet for My Pillow, you'll realize there's a lot of that that he took from Helmet for My Pillow, but he sure. he writes it in the third person. He doesn't refer to himself at mm-hmm. all. He doesn't say, Robert Leckie said this. He said, a Marine had this experience. A Marine said this. And there were things that happened right. to him. And so he did a very good job because once he was a sports writer and a newspaper writer, but he... You know, one thing you can say about Robert Lecky, he was not a narcissist because he wrote about his experiences in other books and he didn't mention his name one time. So right. I, I really enjoyed that about Strongman Armed. And um, so I'm waiting for this other book to come in. Now, it's interesting um, what Charlie was saying about your father and how he's kind of become, you know, he's kind of the voice, if you will, the go-to guide for people wanting to know about Peluso Okinawa. Mm-hmm. And as things happen, when you watch TV or, I mean, not TV, when you're on YouTube and the internet, they kind of know what you're into. And so they'll make suggestions. And I'm sure you're familiar with Lee Marvin, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I knew that Lee Marvin was in a lot of world war two movies. I knew that he served in world war two, but I did not know the capacity in which he served. So I'm laying back in my bed last night. And I turn on YouTube and there said uh, uh, a thumbnail came up, said Lee Marvin combat vet speaks on combat experience. And I pulled three clips. Uh, One 
it's going to be Lee Mar um, uh, Lee Marvin. You're going to be blown away by the three campaigns that he was personally involved with. These Marines are in top shape, ready for the physical demands of combat. Physical conditioning like this, along with realistic training, prepares Marines to fight and win on the battlefield. Like every Marine that I landed with on the beaches of Kwajalein, Enuitok, Saipan during World War II, we were ready to fight before we shipped out to the Pacific. Now, those are three major campaigns. Those are not just sitting in the rear of the gear. That guy saw some action. Yeah. And, and the crazy thing about this video, I don't know if it was intended to be a recruitment video. It's very weird. It came out like 1985. And so he's either at uh, Camp Lejeune or, or um, oh, my mind has slipped. But he's Quantico. Oh, Quantico. He got these 1985 Marines in their 1985 uh field gear and lee marvin just walk around in a blue button-up shirt with suspenders hair not even combed as as if he's like overdubbed over footage but these guys are in the back doing training they're running they're doing their sniper training they're doing live fire i mean uh blank fire drills and he's so out of place because he's just walking in like normal 1985 attire but you have to take him seriously because you just heard where he's been and what he's done and so this YouTube video is about 15, 20 minutes and he's showing, they make references to the Korean war, Vietnam war, all the way up to 1985. And he's talking about, you know, battle experiences and training. It was really cool, but this popped up twice. And I just thought about being you where you're like me, you're sitting in your bed. You've been doing research. YouTube says, Hey, here's a video you might like. And then this pops up in the middle of this 1985 Marine Corps video. E.B. Sledge, nicknamed the Sledgehammer, saw and felt combat at its most intimate level, that of the grunt. Sledge remembers his first campaign, voicing the thoughts, the feelings of every Marine before his first attack. Would I ever see my family again? Would I do my duty or be a coward? Could I kill? I never experienced any more agonizing suspense than the excruciating torture of those moments before we received the signal to begin the assault. I broke out in a cold sweat as the tension mounted with intensity of the bombardment. My stomach was tied in knots. I had a lump in my throat, swallowed with great difficulty. I felt nauseated and feared that my bladder would empty itself and reveal me to be the coward I was. Have you ever heard that audio clip? Actually, uh, Don, it's it's awesome you bring this up because I remember when the Marine Corps asked my dad to come make that video. Really? So that was I do. That I was, do. He I think so you said it's 1985? 85-ish is what I think I'd yeah. have to go look and it makes sense because your dad's book came out in nineteen eighty one. Right. So I remember, I can't 
I'm fuzzy on the details because I mean, that was like literally the first video my dad had ever been in. I just wish they didn't put that horrible 1980s public domain music behind it. Cause it, it reminded me like watching a school training video, but anyhow. yeah, but I remember him when he came home and, and you know, of course we saw it. Um, what, what was the name of the video? Essence of leadership or something like that. I, I don't know. Someone found it and just put it up on YouTube and on you. So if you want to find it on YouTube, just look for Lee Marvin combat vet speaks on combat. That was the title okay. of the video. And it, it, somebody must've got a hold of an old VHS tape and then just digitized yeah. it. I, I remember my dad being in that video. I remember us watching it. I remember him talking about when he was asked to be in it and the, the, thing was he was joking when he came home from uh when the marine corps flew him home after he made it he was kind of joking about how uh yeah lee marvin's gonna narrate and you think that you see me on the camera i'm gonna walk off and lee marvin and i are gonna have a cup of coffee and he said you know i i never saw lee marvin they dubbed all that in later mm-hmm. i was gonna say uh they flew your dad down there and that's the only clip of his voice they used yeah so yeah so uh, and, and I mean, there was video too, you know, if him watching the guys training, I remember in my mind, he was walking along and he stops and sits like on a log on the beach or something. The, in this video I saw on YouTube, they just showed like the, 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 the classic fi- picture of your dad with his shirt off sitting uh, um, on Peleliu and I mean on Pavuvu okay. and then just like a couple still, the, the, the version I watched last night, I mean, I'll go back and rewatch it. He wasn't physically, they didn't show him okay. physically on the, on the video. Just- Interesting. Cause I've seen one where he was, but it's that same, you know, could yeah. I do my duty? I, rem- I remember it really well. Um, I-, I will tell you this. I mean, Lee Marvin, there weren't many Hollywood guys that my dad had an ounce of respect for, but I, I can always tell something about Lee. You know, whenever Lee Marvin came up, my dad would stop and kind of he'd pay attention. It would be it would have been so interesting to get. Um, hold on, I'm googling it now because I don't have it memorized. It would be so interesting to get your dad's uh, opinion on Eddie Albert, Green Acre star. Yeah, he well he wasn't he a Higgins vote coxswain at Tarawa. Yeah, when I was watching the documentary um, a few years ago, the Return to Tarawa, they're talking about how. When all these guys are getting mowed down, there's a um, landing craft boat just going, spending hours, yep. picking up survivors, pulling them on, and it was Eddie Albert of Green Acres. Yes, which I've, it, I've seen him interviewed about that. I mean, my dad certainly would have given him his due as well. I mean, think about it, Don. You look at what's out there now. Yeah, you know, th- I mean, think about the 1940s when you know actors like Jimmy Stewart commanded a B-24 squadron and then flew B-29s later. I mean, can you imagine anybody from Hollywood now doing something like that? Could you imagine Glenn Miller? No one knows what happened to him. Plane got shot down. Could you imagine anybody leaving Hollywood today to go over there and just vanish like that? But once again, Uh, so many people served that, you know, back then it wasn't a big deal. Everybody was there. Clark Gable, you know, Clark Gable made the the film about gunners in the Eighth Air Force. I mean, yeah, you, exactly. It was just it was just kind of understood back then. I know you and Jeff talked about Twelve O'clock High. You know, Gregory Peck, one of my favorites. And just to wrap up the Lee Marvin video, this is at the end. He's walking through a barracks, and it would have been so cool. Now that I know your dad was there, but apparently Lee Marvin must have been doing like uh, 
an episode of uh, Days or Lives or whatever when your dad was there. But at the end, he walks into an old barracks and he has your dad's book yeah. and he sits down on a cot and he reads this. For his comrades who struggled, bled and died and eventually won on Peleliu and Okinawa, E.B. Sledge wrote in his book, and I quote, We forged a bond that time would never erase. Marine Corps training taught us to kill efficiently and to try to survive. But it also taught us loyalty to each other and love. You know, one of the things I mentioned on my other podcast, which we, it's funny, when we went to break, Henry, I discovered that we were streaming on my What's In Your Head podcast. So to the What's In Your Head audience, welcome to the What's The Skeletal So we're actually streaming on Facebook, on that channel, plus YouTube and Twitch. But, um, oh, now I lost my train of thought. Um, Lee Marvin was sitting on the reading from the Um, oh, I just completely lost my train of thought, but, um. Anyhow, um, we never. Well, I, go, I, go I do remember that scene of Lee Marvin walking through the barracks mm-hmm. and he sits down with, you know, what had to have been a first edition yeah. with the Obrey. He starts reading, you know, we formed a bond, Marine Corps training. You know, because if, if I recall, the, the Marine Corps was doing that video, um, I think it was for incoming officers or, or new officers. And it was, it might have been. And, you know, it wasn't long before that, I think, there'd been a, in the Marine Corps Gazette, there had been a series of articles that my dad wrote. And they asked him to after uh, they had read with the Olbery. Yeah. And I think it focused on Peleliu defense in depth, you know, something like that. But it's, it's really this segues, or well, it goes back to Charlie's question, which was a great question. But that was kind of, those were sort of some early occurrences, if you will, that, that sort of, you know, started to set the light off that, that okay, people are paying attention with the old breed. You know, somebody seems to think it's a good book. Does part of you think, uh, does part of you feel like you need to reread those books and get kind of back, um, I don't know if the word I'm looking for, I guess, situated or up to speed because it's almost like your father had such an impact on the history side of that and the things. And as time goes by, obviously more new shows are going to be produced. Do you almost feel like you you're kind of taken the, the spot, not really the spot, but the position to continue to share his legacy and be the voice of the sledge family? Um, yeah, that's, I mean, great point great question because so you know yesterday the we happy few 506 show aired mm-hmm. and my mom watched it with us uh joe mucha was doing a pre-show with matthew leach um before the main event aired with myself and bruce mckenna and the guy who played scott gibson who played captain haldane and after all of that i mean we spent the entire afternoon watching the pre-show and then the main event and then my mom and I did some talking afterward, and she was really, it made me feel good because she said, I'm, I'm really proud of what you did. You're, you're a good spokesman for the family. Um, and that made me feel proud 
you know, sure. because I, I have a passion for this history. And, you know, yeah, strong men armed. I mean, I've read that book. I've read Helmet for My Pillow. I've read Helmet for My Pillow twice. I remember my dad reading it when he was preparing to write his book. It's such a, so, such a great book. You know, I want to reread Strong Men Armed. Um, and, you know, being part of the We Happy Few 506 thing and then jumping in with you guys, I mean, it's making me want to, on a really visceral level, it's making me want to reconnect with all these books. And not only that, but, you know, I've texted you and Jeff both about new books I'm ordering. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily on Marines in the Pacific. I mean, I just got a couple of books on the New Guinea campaign. I've always been fascinated by that. But I, to, to answer your question, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I kind of feel it would be a tragic waste to just turn my back on all of this and walk away from it. And that's why I feel blessed to like be able to hook up with you guys and be a part of your show and meet a young guy like Charlie. I mean, I, I feel bad. I wasn't able to answer his question because no, you, answered you know, I, I didn't want the show to be all about, Oh, let's talk about Eugene sledge. I mean, sure. I think what he's doing is great. I mean, there's a young guy serving his country who's, who's making sacrifices right now. And I wanted to thank him. You know, I hope he's still watching. I mean, I think it's great that young guys like that want to perpetuate the history. You just reminded me of where I was segueing off to. Um, and not only that, the guy's active duty and he's going yeah. to officer training school and then he takes his free time. He's, yes. he's up to his ass in Marine Corps. I mean, his life is a Marine Corps. And then in what little free time he has, he's organizing a, an event to put the history of Guadalcanal out there. And yeah, what this, what you said, remind me what, when my train flew off the track a, a few minutes okay. ago, what I was getting to was the Lee Marvin. We were talking about all the people who served in world war two and how it wasn't a big deal to them because everybody was there. So, you, you know, to, to find out that all these actors who went on to be do big things. Well, of course they served every, almost everybody served. Right. And we talk about the greatest, uh, generation and then it seems to me and i brought this up on my other show i honestly think the reason we're having all the problems we're having with our government regardless of what side of the aisle you're on is that a majority of these people they didn't serve up until this point all our prior to this all of our politicians regardless what year they're either revolutionary war veterans civil war veterans world war one veterans World War II veterans, Korean War veterans, our politicians, they went through strife. A lot of them had served. Their family members had served. They understood what was at stake. And now it seems like a big handful of the politicians, once again, regardless, left or right or center, they didn't have those experiences. They didn't have that firsthand view of what's at stake and what's to lose. And so that's why I feel like our politicians are going all over the place because they didn't have those experiences and they don't know what we're at risk of losing. Uh, no, I think that's a, a valid point because I think now seems like a couple of years ago, maybe three or four years ago, time just flies now. Um, I read something on the internet that said we are now our government now, like the, the house of representatives, the Senate, nobody in there was ever active duty military. John McCain was like one I of the last ones. John McCain. No one knew that George Bush Senior was shot yeah. down in the Pacific and his freaking, he was shot down in his TBF. Yeah. People don't realize that once again, John McCain, one of our last few Vietnam vet, mm-hmm. Hanoi Hilton, yep. 
the horrible things. You know, and I, it's, it, I, I, I want to say, you know, and if Charlie is still listening, um, you know, I remember many years ago, it wasn't uncommon. I think I said this to you and Jeff before. It wasn't uncommon that, that young Marines would just come to my dad's house, to my parents' house in Montevallo just to stop by and pay their respects and get, get my dad to sign a copy of their book. I, I remember that, you know, it happened many times. And I think there was, I was probably off at college, but I remember a young guy, I mean, could have been Charlie about his age, a yeah. young officer. And he came by and he met my dad and he and he and my mom and dad had some iced tea and they talked and, and, and my mother told me about this like a couple of days later when I came by the house. Um, and when the guy, this young Marine went out, got in his car and left, she said that my dad just like got emotional. And I mean, not, not really bawling or anything, but just got a little choked up and said, young men like that are the backbone of this country. And, you know, you and I talked briefly about it, but that book that I promoted last week and the week, a few weeks before hang tough Dick winners. Yeah. That I strongly suggest. And I, and I was going to say, I think me and you and uh, Jeff, we're going to get a, like a unofficial. What's the scuttlebutt book club where we're mailing each other books, by the way, um, for those you don't know, when you mail a book, tell them it's a uh, media and it's only $3. It may have gone up a little bit, but yeah, so we might get to a point where we're mailing each other books to read, but in hang tough, you get such an intimate view of, Dick Winters and his thoughts. And when he's writing his, his letters to Dieta, he did not hold back on his views of gold bricks of people who a didn't serve or go out of their way, not to do their hundred percent. And he basically had big disdain for people who didn't serve to the best of their abilities. And it's, it's very evident in that book. And you can see how he feels about, patriotism military and doing your best to serve this country at that time and that book is so darn good so for for you guys um once again hang tough marine raiders and then obviously henry and i can both attest to strongmen armed if you're a fan of robert lecky and a helmet for my pillow um this is literally the history of the yeah. pto campaign from beginning to end and um the book's so darn good. I got two copies of them and I've read. Yeah, I mean, and you know, you're talking about, I, I got to admit uh, now, as you know, Don, I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of after an 11 year hiatus, I'm, I'm diving back into my passion for world war two, but the, the Macon raid and, and that, that 1942 stuff, you know, it, unless it's Guadalcanal, I mean, I've done a lot of reading on Guadalcanal uh, because that was such a seminal battle, but some of the stuff you guys were talking about, I got to get boned up on that, man. I'm. It's been. I've read about making, but I'm shamefully, you know, I, I knew the bare bones of what you guys were discussing, but that's an aspect of, of Marine Corps history I don't know as well as I wish it. I didn't know either until I read this book, and you know, it's interesting. Um, at the beginning, they're talking about how Donovan, who uh, was the precursor OSS, and the Roosevelt and all of them got together, and they came up with the idea of based off of the European commandos is, hey, we need a group of guys to drop behind enemy lines. And everybody knows about the Raiders. But out of that same meeting came the beginning of the um, the Marauders, Merrill's Marauders, mm -hmm. um, which I want to bring somebody on here. I need to – I've got two books on Merrill's Marauders. But the difference between them and the Raiders, 
Merrill's Marauders were made up of American soldiers, Indian soldiers, and Chinese soldiers, and they were dropped behind the lines of Burma. And they pretty much chose what they wanted to wear. They basically were told, okay, you got to carry this much ammo, these weapons. But as far as their uniform go, they could wear P-41s. They could wear, uh, a lot of them actually wore the same jungle shoes that the Raiders wore. Um, they had their own style of sweatshirt that was made in, um, outside of India somewhere. And so they actually had freedom to choose the sweatshirt, the, the uniforms that they wanted to wear and the gear they carried, whether it was a Mazette bag or a Marine Corps P-41. And they did a lot of work with pack mules and they did tremendous amount of work out in, in Burma and all that. And so I really uh-huh. want to get up to speed on the Merrill Marauder stuff so I can bring people to have attention to that because that was that was an amazing group of men as well. But very few people Absolutely. know about the Marauders. And, you know, we said this on this podcast multiple times that, you know, one, one of the reasons we bring on guests is because it's impossible for a Henry Sledge to know everything about everything. It's impossible for Don Abernathy sure. or Jeff Cobb said, there's just, there's so much out there. I mean, that's why they had two different people running the PTO. You had the first division here. You had the fourth division there. There was only two times in the existence of the Raiders that, um, out of all their missions, that the Raiders served in the same campaigns. Prior, really? uh, Tagali was the first. Uh, Macon was the second Raiders. Um, I forget. I have to read. There was another island where, oh, sorry, Bougainville. Um, when they first went to capture Bougainville, it was the, the uh, mm-hmm. first time two Raider divisions were together. And no, and I didn't know until reading this book that the 4th Marine Division was created when they took the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th battalions, Raider battalions, and got right. rid of them because there was a little animosity between the infantry um, leadership t- towards the Raiders because they're like, they get all the special training, especially when uh, Roosevelt started heading up the fourth. He got all kinds of stuff because of his, who his father was. But right. um, there was a lot of disdain. And as the war progressed, they no longer needed commando troops behind enemy lines. And so they're like, why waste the money? And, and, and part of the disdain, too, was the Raiders were going through boot camp and basically through the other Marine divisions and taking their best guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at a certain point they're like, well, we can do everything that the Raiders are doing. And so they basically, once the need for a commando soldier was gone, they just turned them into the fourth Marine of it. Yeah. Let's talk real quick. I know we're running a little long, but you, you saw some time. I know it's, it's late on a Sunday. A little I, bit. Yeah. Let's just talk briefly about, and we've talked about a uh, hinted about it enough on here, your trip to Peleliu and how that came to be. 1999 was the 55th anniversary, and my dad got some kind of communique uh, on that. And I was out on my own working, doing pretty well, and, and or, or doing okay. Had a little bit of extra cash to spend. And I remember I went home one day to Montevallo to visit my parents, and I think I saw the flyer, you know, that, that had come in the mail. And I think my dad said, yeah, there's a 55th anniversary return to Peleliu trip. You know, you know, I'm certainly not interested, but here's here it is if you want to check it out. And I don't think he really had any desire or belief that I would act on it. But I picked it up and, I, and you know, I, 
I looked at him and I said, Dad, I've wanted to go to Peleliu since I was a kid. How old were you at the time? Well, in 1999, I was, hmm, let's see, 35. Okay. Perfect so, time to go. You know, so I was like, man, I've it's been a dream of mine to go to Peleliu all my life. You know, the idea of this. Um, and I didn't know that much about it. I mean, I knew my dad's history with it, but I'd, I'd certainly grown up hearing the name, as I said to you guys. But um, I started, that was when I met Joseph Alexander, Colonel Alexander, because he was going on the trip. Um, and I called him because I had seen him on some uh, Lou Rita documentaries where my dad had been interviewed on Peleliu and Okinawa. Uh, Joe, of course, wrote a great book on Tarawa, Utmost Savagery. Mm -hmm. And and he's also read, he also wrote a book about uh, Edson, Colonel Edson. Yep. And uh, which I need to reread because that ties into what you were just talking about. But, um, you know, I felt I wasn't that was kind of before I really got passionate about World War II, but I was conversant with it. And I called Joe. Of course, I called him Colonel Alexander. I uh, didn't start calling him Joe till I named my kid after him, but um, I called him up and, you know, introduced myself and he just couldn't have been nicer. I mean, it was like talking to an uncle, you know, sure, because he just thought so highly of my dad. Um, what there was a, he was, I think one of the battalion commanders on Peleliu later won the medal of honor at Korea, general Ray Davis, I think. Okay. He was supposed to go on that trip. He ended up having to back out, but I was super excited about possibly meeting him. But um, the thing that really clinched it for me, Don, was the idea got in my head. At the time, I was single, no kids, no wife, no nothing. And I'm like, man, I want to go on this trip. I want to go to Peleliu. My girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife for 21 years, had when we started dating, she and she has a cousin who who was a Marine, and she immediately latched on to E.B. Sledge with the old breed. She was conversant with it pretty quick, read the book, and she said, "You, it's your destiny. You got to go on this trip." Yeah, absolutely. And I said, well, yeah, you're right. So I did, and I've said ever since, Don, it was probably the coolest thing I've ever done. I've talked um, to a few people who's been to different battlegrounds throughout the world. And and the first thing I say is, once you're there, it's got to bring a whole new, full-colored light to when you go back and you're reading whatever battle it is that you, you visit the battlefield to. It's just got to really put it in full color. Because as people have said multiple times, the problem with history up until recently is when you're watching it in black and white, it just doesn't feel real. And that's why yeah. when you see the World War II in color that Discovery Channel did, it really makes it feel more realistic. But when you're there and you're feeling the heat, you're smelling the smells, oh, God. you're hearing well, the, the animals, it's just got to make it that much more real. The, the thing about, and there were two guys on that trip um, who were really knowledgeable about the battle and had been there multiple times. And in their previous trips, they had tried to find the bunker on Ingecebus that my dad and his squad assaulted and ended up killing like 17 Japanese in it. And it was depicted in the Pacific. Of course, they don't show that it's another amphibious landing, which we know that it was. Um, but we did find that bunker. And, you know, I remember uh, one of the guys, Eric Maylander was his name. 
And like the wall that my dad looked over when Bergen told him, Sledgehammer, look over the wall, see what's in there. And my dad did, and there was a Japanese soldier with an, uh, I think it was actually a Lewis gun, and he ripped off around and almost took my dad's head off. And, you know, of course, seeing this bunker, I'm, I'm just like not overcome with emotion, but just, you know, almost. And Eric's like, Henry, do you realize he was kneeling down by the wall? He said, do you realize if your father had been a quarter of a second too slow, you would have never been born? And so I got, you know, got multiple pictures of the bunker and just. What was the condition like 50 years later? Well, it was, and I've seen pictures of it even more recently. They've cleared out around it now. And I think it's known as the sledge yeah, Bergen bunker or the sledge bunker, whatever, uh, which my dad certainly wouldn't have asked for that. But, yeah. Um, in 1999, it was still pretty grown up around it. You know, we had our machetes and we're hacking uh, you know, foliage off of it. <clears throat> but uh, I remember looking down in it and because one of my buddies were just like, man, we, I wish we could just like spend the night out here and spend an entire two or three days at this one site. But looking down in it, uh, it was choked out with, of course, it was full of just really murky dark water. Mm-hmm. And it was all these like cypress vines growing in. I've got pictures don't want to get into it now. We'll save that for next episode. Sure. You know, and I know it'll be about other stuff too, of course, but um, it was really choked out with vines and grown up down inside it. But we were, man, to have a pump and pump that thing out and just really deconstruct it. But know? I'm sure you're just looking at this thing like, I cannot imagine being in here as a Japanese soldier confined in this yeah. concrete bunker because you know it had probably had water in it then too. Um, at least some. Possibly, yeah. And, Obviously, it's concrete. You're in the tropics. It's probably 30 degrees hotter in there than it is outside. And just being in there, going through that experience, it's just got to be bone chilling. But, yeah, I mean, I could go on and on, but it was an amazing trip. I mean, you know, to, to, and I mean, it's even the stuff that didn't even involve my dad. Like, we went up in the Umar Brogel into a park. I want to say that it was called the Carl Badlands, which I know that's not one of the better, you know, usually it's five brothers, five sisters, Mm -hmm. Death Valley, Horseshoe, China Wall, which we saw those places too. But there was a spot that Eric Maylander took us to. And and of course it was just, it was a really small group that day because most of the people had gone home. It was really hot. Of course, you could hear these jungle birds plaintively calling off in the distance. And, Don, it was the coolest thing in the world to see a machine gun emplacement. It was a U.S. 30 caliber machine gun with the remains of a cl- of an ammo belt still wow. in breach. I've got pictures of it. It's so amazing that 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 stuff. Now, obviously, another thirty years has gone by, but it's just so amazing how so much of that stuff wasn't tampered with. I know. Right. I, I have. I got a buddy named Frank Dermody who who lives in Palau. And uh, Frank was a huge fan of mine. He actually came to Montevallo not long after I met him on that trip to visit my father and brought him an 8-millimeter Nambu pistol that he found just walking down West Road. And I have that now, by the way. But uh, Frank was a really, or is a really cool guy. Um, and he, he is now, he moved away from Palau for a while. Now he's back there. But, um, you know, it, it was cool for him to come meet my dad and, and, 
and I met him. He he came and found me at the hotel in Karor, um not long before I was ready to fly home because uh, he had heard I was there. And we could just, you know, instantly became friends, of course. Um, but he, he's got all kinds of stories, uh, you know, having lived and living there now. But, you know, you talk about, I wish Jeff was here because I know he, like me, loves the World War II planes. Going down from the northern Plowan Islands, Koror to be exact, down to Peleliu by boat, oh, probably a few miles off Peleliu, there's a Japanese Zero fighter. Wow. And they've got it marked with a buoy. And it's just, it's it's a perfect plan for them. I mean, you can look down in that crystal clear water and see that unmistakable, perfect shape of a zero fighter. And, you know, I was told I wanted to go back out to it. I was told you could, but we didn't make it. But at low tide, you could actually sit in the cockpit. Wow. And they had it marked with a buoy. And, I mean, I love zero fighters. I sure. Mean, just to, to, but to see that and, and you know, like, six feet of water and just, oh, I wanted to get my hands on it so bad. Uh, and to see the rusted out, you know, I love amphibian tractors. I love LVTs and to see those things, that was, you know, and it was, re- that was one of the cool things when I took the show out to the national museum Pacific war and participated in their, uh, living history week and was coming out of the back of that alligator. That was so, so damn cool. Cause they have one yeah. stationary there, but coming just standing in there, in full uniform with the rifle, just waiting to to spill out the back gate is just that was so damn. That was one of my highlights. There, it was so damn cool. I, I thought it was cool in the Pacific, you know, when they're loading up in the LST, and you hear, you know, I, I mean, I'm not a mechanic, but I do, I do work around them all day every day, and of course, you know, LVTs had seven cylinder radial engines, mm-hmm. and there's nothing in the world that sounds like a radial engine because you know, it's it, it's the non-syncopated cylinders. And mm-hmm. But, you know, when they fire those LVTs up and you hear, you know, that entire cargo bay with those Amtraks and they're all just, you know, when they rev them up, you know, it, it just, ah, there's nothing in the world that sounds those like it. Those doors but, open up, that light cast in there. That's such a great yeah. shot. The other but, ha- uh, I saw a lot of LVTs when I was there. Um, you know, and, and it's, so I was starting to talk about Frank Dermody earlier. I asked him in an email here not long ago, is it still pretty undisturbed? And, and he said, yeah, it still mostly is. I mean, I think they've like done a, like a paved walking trail around the perimeter of Bloody Nose Ridge. And he, but he said, man, I think that's a good thing. Cause he said it, you can access the sites quicker. So it, it sounds like Peleliu is still, the closest thing you're going to get to a preserved, just a preserved in time battlefield. Yeah. Cause that's one of the things that hurts my heart when I see battlefields over in Europe and the bunkers are spray painted with graffiti and all this crap. Yeah. It's like, I get it. You're a 13 year old boy. That's what you guys do, but can't you leave the monuments alone? <laughs> Go spray paint the, the pharmacy down the road, leave the bunkers alone. Well, look what they're doing to monuments in this country, but we don't need to go there. <sighs> Let's, well, let's don't go down that road. Well, uh, let me just say this about that. Um, instead of taking them down, why not just add a plaque saying, hey, this guy was an a-hole. <laughs> Here's why we think. Because I've said on my other podcast, not all monuments are a celebration of good. They're a reminder of history. And if you don't believe me, head over to Auschwitz. They don't have Auschwitz still standing because they're celebrating the Holocaust. No, they're reminding people of bad things that happen. So if you don't appreciate a right. monument, you don't tear it down. You maybe 
tell the story of your reasons for not liking that monument and how that monument is important to prevent the things you didn't like from happening again because it's a reminder. Just like there's people who are trying to pretend the Holocaust didn't happen. What are you going to do 90 years from now when you got ignorant people walking around saying the Civil War didn't happen because we took down all the monuments? But that's all I'll say about that on this podcast. Sure. But uh, anyhow, Henry, I think we've had a great episode. Uh, I hope so. We're going to wrap it up. Thank you guys so much. This episode and all episodes of anything really on the Digital 410 Network is brought to you by our friends at At Computers. At Computers has been providing IT solutions for all Southwest Florida since 2004 and the rest of the world since about 2008. So even if you don't live in Southwest Florida, if you have computer problems, as long as your internet's working, they can help you, assist you remotely. So give them a call at 239-283-1120. And obviously, if you're in Southwest Florida, you need computer repair, laptop repair, network expansions, anything technical, give them a call at 239-283-1120. And while you're on the internet, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com click on the orange of Patreon banner sign up for Patreon it really helps to support not only this show but all the shows on the Digital 410 network you can sign up at a dollar a month you have access to the OG5 podcast which I gotta get Henry on Henry, you're not aware of the OG5 podcast. We have a podcast that's behind the paywall, they say. It's only for people who subscribe on Patreon, and that's mm-hmm. places where sometimes we talk about things that you know don't have anything to do with the podcast that we're on. Me and my brother's done one. We just launched a new podcast on the network we haven't really brought up here. I'm not even a part of, which I'm thrilled about. So the Digital Fortune Network has now a fourth podcast called the Tackle Your Personal Best Podcast with Ron and Michael. They're both fishermen and owner of uh, PB Baits, and they talk all fishing. And so if you guys are into fishing, check out that podcast. You can also find information at D-410, where all the rest of the Digital 410 Network podcast reside. But Henry, thank you so much, and I'm super stoked to announce that you are now a full-time member of the WTSP staff. And it worked out great, because as Jeff and I were talking, when there's times come where someone's not available, the show can still go on. Yeah. And tonight was a perfect Absolutely. example of that. And uh, thanks to uh, Charlie uh, Dillon for coming on, and um, Henry and I are both super um, grateful for what you're doing with your life, not only in the World War II realm, but in the reality realm of being in the Marine Corps and going through officer training camp. And he was telling me before we went on that he graduates from that on November 11th, hence me saying, hey, sir, November 11th will be here before you know it. Okay. And uh, thank you guys so much for uh, watching us and listening to the show. And for those of you who just became aware of us on YouTube, you can download the podcast wherever fine podcasts are found, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Music, um, anywhere. You can literally find us even on iHeartRadio. If you got one of those on TVs from Walmart with Roku that has iHeartRadio, you can listen to the podcast there. So feel free to download us. Please download us. But more importantly, share us with your friends. The more people who know about us, the more people listen to the show will only make things better and help us bring you more content. But on that note, Henry, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And hopefully now that uh, we can get a consistent podcast going every week instead of two a month, um, Mm -hmm. our listenership will grow. So thank you so much, sir. And I will talk to you soon. And for everybody else, on the behalf of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, thank you for hanging out with us. And as always, find more episodes at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Thank you guys so much. And we will talk to you, hopefully, next week. And I'm stalling because I'm trying to find this. This has been a Digital 410 production. (laughs) 